By now, you've probably heard all about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You might even already be investing in them. But did you know that you could invest in cryptocurrencies through your retirement account? That's right. With iTrust Capital, you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies from a crypto IRA and get all the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA. iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies. And unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. The iTrust Capital platform is easy easy to use and only takes a few minutes to create your account. Setting up an IRA is free and iTrust fees are low. It's time to start taking control of your financial future. With iTrust Capital, you can get all the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Visit itrustcapital.com to start investing today. That's itrustcapital.com. Taxes and conditions may apply. Fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. iTrust Capital Inc. does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. All right. So, so good. We are in a series called Fire Quenchers. And our key verse, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The verse speaks about how we, as God's people, have the ability to be able to quench the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, quench not the spirit. Another translation says, do not or don't put out the spirit's fire. Don't put out the spirit's fire. There's a verse in Leviticus chapter 6, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 6 verse 13. And it's, it's referring to the law of the burnt offering. And here's what it says. It says, the fire, meaning the fire on the altar, shall always be burning. It shall never go out. So it's God's desire that the fire is always burning. It shall never go out. But it says in the context of that passage in Leviticus that it's our responsibility in, in the Old Testament was the priests. In the New Testament, we are priests, the Bible says. And each one of us, it's our responsibility to make sure the fire doesn't go out on the altar. Now, metaphorically, that's speaking about the fire of the Holy Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Quench not the Spirit. Now, again, I just cannot overemphasize how uh, much responsibility and we've been given as people that we can actually put out God's fire. Think about that. I don't know if I was God if I would give people that much a responsibility. But we can put out the Spirit's fire. And God says, make sure you don't. So we're talking about living in a place where the fire of God is burning in our lives continually. It's a place where we are living in zeal. In fact, um, I don't want to get too technical here, but remember the, the passage in Revelation 3 where Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea. It talks about, he says, you know, I'm standing at the door and I knock, right? Now, again, we typically refer to that verse, I believe it's verse 20 of Revelation 3, and we apply it like Jesus is knocking on the heart's door of the sinner. But he's not referring to people that don't know Jesus individually. He's speaking to a church collectively, the church of Laodicea. And he's saying, I am knocking at your door. I'm wanting to come into your midst. I'm wanting to be present amongst you. 
And it's just an amazing revelation when we get that, that it is possible that we can have church where Jesus is not the, the centerpiece, Jesus is not the guest of honor, so to speak. And we have these religious gatherings where Jesus himself is not even present. What an amazing thing. Well, here's what the Lord says. He says, those whom I love, I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, God loves us, so what does he do? He chastens us, right? And what is our response to be when he disciplines us? Be zealous and repent. All right. Now, the word zealous means burn with fire. It means to burn like a white-hot passion ardor for God. That passion. That's what it means, all right? So it's normal for us to be on fire for God. That's normal Christianity. Okay, repent means change your mind, stop how you're living, the way you think, the way you're behaving. Change that, come into agreement with the word, right? The interesting thing is the tenses that are employed in the Greek actually say that to repent is really a one-time thing. You do it, at, it's not to be a, a continuous. It's not like we're to be repenting all the time, even though there is a place, obviously, for that. But we repent of living lives where we have no passion for God, where we're not on fire, but the tense of the word be zealous means to burn continually, to be on fire continually. So we shift into a lifestyle where our normal is to be on fire for God. We don't have the, you know, the ups and downs, the roller type, roller coaster type Christianity, but we are in a place where we're constantly burning with zeal for God. The passion of God has consumed us, just like it actually says that we are to be in a place where we quench not or we do not allow the fire to go out in our lives. Hallelujah. Isn't that so good? Praise God. All right. So the early church, when you look at the early church, you know, I was thinking about Paul this week. Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, He's very zealous. He said that himself. But he was zealous in the sense that he was ignorant. He did not understand God. He did not know who Jesus was. He was a religious zealot. It was blind zeal, zeal without knowledge. So he's persecuting the church. Then one day, as he's traveling on the road to Damascus, en route to arrest Christians, so to have them arrested, he has this encounter with Jesus. And Jesus appears to him. And Jesus rebukes him, says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you opposing me? Why are you fighting against me? Why are you resisting me? And, of course, he had no idea. He thought that he was doing God's service when he was actually arresting these Christians. So what ends up happening at that point is he has this encounter with God, and he has this heavenly vision of Jesus, and his life turns around and it's interesting when you study the book of acts in particular you see paul saying repeatedly i was not disobedient to the heavenly vision i had this encounter and it changed me you don't see him regressing you don't see him struggling in his faith i'm not saying there weren't struggles i'm not saying there weren't things but paul never got stuck 
Paul was a person who grew in his in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood the things of God. He kept moving forward. He overcame resistance and obstacles and hardships and even some of the things that he had learned. There is a process of, of deconstructing. And, of course, he spent time in the wilderness so that he was renewed and he was refreshed and he was reinformed and refocused so he could do the will of God. But he lived his life on fire from God. At the end of his life, while he's in prison, he's about to be executed. He says, I have finished my course. I've run a good race. I have fought a good fight. And he said, I've completed it. I've been on fire. I haven't lost my way. I haven't, I'm finishing well. I'm going to make sure that what God started in me is brought to completion. And you know, the secret to being on fire for God. You know what? Let me just put it this way. Revival. What is revival? Revival, first of all, is normal Christianity. Now, I understand there are times when when God, uh, it seems, breaks into human history and does things, and, and perhaps we could even say unsolicited, but the fact is there's a place where we live constantly in the Spirit. It's a place where we are up in the Lord. We go from glory to glory, from strength to strength. I'm not saying we don't have uh, days or weeks or even months, God forbid, where we get stuck or we struggle. But what I am saying is normal Christianity is going from one level of glory to the next. It's moving in that place of encountering God on a daily basis of knowing who he is and experiencing him more intimately and powerfully in our lives. The older we get in our faith, often what happens is we look back and like the church in Ephesus, right? You've fallen from your first love. You were on fire, but now you're no longer zealous for God. Go back to your first love. Uh, God wants us to live in that place of perpetual communion and intimacy with him because that's the secret of revival. A person, um, people, uh, a church that has learned how to stay and live in the presence of God continually will experience revival. I'm not saying they won't have difficulty because the fact is when you live in that place of being connected to the power of God, the presence of God, the enemy doesn't like it. And there's going to be challenges. There's going to be spiritual attacks and so on. But we overcome, don't we? We overcome. You know, I I think honestly we, we have to come to that point where we recognize that we've been called to overcome. So, But we do know this, that God has called us to a life of habitation with him. Habitation, not visitation, habitation. Ephesians 2.22 is an interesting verse. It talks about how we as the church collectively are being built together to become a dwelling in which God himself lives. The King James says to become a habitation for God himself. Now, it's a place of habitation. In him, we live, we move, we have our being. We live in him. We dwell in him. He's not visiting us. We're not visiting him, but we live together. It's a place of permanent residency, in other words. We don't want, you know, God doesn't want to be like a a father that just has weekend visitation rights with his kids. He wants us to recognize that we're called to live with him. 
And he has a possession of us. He has full custody of us. And we are to rejoice in the fact that he is a good father and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's there. He wants to commune with us. He wants to have a relationship. And that's what normal new Christianity is all about. Going back to the verse that we just referenced, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Now, I've said this already, but I just want to reiterate it because it's so profound. In the natural, there are at least two ways you can put out a fire. One way is you can suffocate a fire. You can use a fire extinguisher. You can throw a wet blanket on a fire, and you can pretty much very quickly put out a fire. A second way to see a fire burn out is by simply refusing to stoke the fire. So suffocation or starvation. You do not add fuel, the fire eventually starves and it goes out. Would you rather die of suffocation or starvation? Now listen, I know that sounds sick, but the fact is... That's a, that's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that. The correct answer is neither. Okay? Neither. I don't want to die that way. Now, why? Because suffocation is relatively quick, isn't it? But starvation is a long, drawn-out process. It takes time, quite some time, for a person to die of starvation. And in the spirit, there are different ways in which the enemy attacks us. He does at times try to th- throw a wet blanket on us, smother our passion for God. You know, he does try to do that in churches. But then the more subtle way in which he works is he causes us to to be distracted. He causes us to become discouraged, disenchanted, even disillusioned. And what ends up taking place is we go into a place where we stop communing with God. We stop ministering to him. We stop loving him. We stop spending time with him. We neglect putting the fuel on the fire, so to speak, and then we can do that for a day, a few days, maybe a week or so. But eventually, guess what happens? We become cold. We become hard-hearted, even calloused, insensitive to the Holy Spirit. We lose passion. We, we lose our purpose And it's because of something that we did in neglecting the Spirit. So what is the answer? Well, Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Spirit. And if you read the context of Ephesians 4, he talks about how through our actions, uh, our bitterness, our anger, our unforgiveness, and overt actions of disobedience to God, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. But another scripture is found in 2 Timothy 1.6, where Paul says, stir up the gift of God that is within you, or fan into flame the gift of God that is within you. So the picture is of a fire that is just burning dimly, and, and uh, it's going to go out, if left unattended, so there has to be a stirring up. There has to be a, a fanning into flames, so to speak, of the fire. And we're called to do both. Don't grieve the spirit. Don't throw a wet blanket on the spirit. But don't forsake the importance of what? Stoking the fire. Stir up the fire of God that is within you. You know, the devil is a fire quencher. He wants to put out the fire of God in our lives. And there's different ways that he does this, but let me just make it very clear to us this morning 
but he knows our weaknesses. He knows the, the vulnerabilities that we have, the chinks in our armor, so to speak. He knows those areas in our life in which he can exploit us because we have given place to him. There are open doors, so to speak, and he has legal access into certain areas of our lives. He knows that he can offend us, for example. He knows that if something, this, if this person does this, that person will get offended and therefore they'll withdraw from from prayer, the withdrawal from communion, they may stop going to church, for example. He knows the areas in our life that we still need God to heal us in. And he'll, he'll work to exploit our vulnerabilities. Does that make sense? Right? So this is what the word is very clear. He's a fire quencher. Uh, one of the ways that he endeavors to put out the fire of God in our lives individually in churches collectively is through schism and division among believers. Creating schism, factions, division among believers. You know, we are originally from Canada. We lived in America for quite some time. And it was amazing in America. There's certain places you can go in, in cities. And no kidding, you go on every corner and all down the street, there's all these churches and many, most of them are quite small. There's some that are larger. And I talked to pastors and particularly in the inner city in America, and I've asked them and they said, oh, well, this church was started by this person because they were offended and they left and they went and started their own church and, and on and on and again. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's all, you know, um, perpetrated by people that were offended and they were just went out and started their own church, but many times it is. And the reality is, you know what? I, I told this story uh, last Sunday. You know, I'm, I'm at a church in Seattle, Washington. I'm ministering. This woman, I see her standing there, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, tell her that she needs to be in one accord and in one place. And I went over to her at an appropriate time, and I said, God says he wants you to be in one accord in one place. Now, I don't know what that means. She looked at me and you could see she was very angry. She was very angry and I just looked at her. I thought she was going to hit me. <laughs> I walked away. You know, that's, I, I'm just the delivery boy. And the fact is I shared the word of the Lord. Later on after the service, she approached me. And she said, you know what? I was really upset with you. I was angry. And she said, but I've got to admit what you said is true. And I said, okay, so what's, what's that mean? What's the application? She said, well, I'm actually married to the pastor. He's my husband. And said, I used to attend this church. I said, well, yeah, I would hope so. She said, we had a disagreement. We're still married. We still live in the same home, but we had a disagreement. And I actually took most of the women in the church, went down the road and opened up my own church. No kidding. I could not believe it. So here she is in the church where her husband is a pastor, where she also used to co-pastor the church. She's been gone for almost a year, I believe. And she has her own church and they're all disgruntled, offended people. Wouldn't you want, what an amazing thing to, to, you know, gravitate and, and to build upon, right? First church of the offended, right? Wow. So healthy. 
first church of the bitter, disgruntled, you know, and this is what they were doing when they were building. And it was just such a terrible thing. So I don't know what happened after that. I did my job. I released the word of the Lord. But it was obvious that the Lord was not happy with her action. And the devil will try to cause offense. He'll try to cause division in whatever way to separate us. Because together we are a powerful force. Together we can do so much. You know, one of the ancient strategies in warfare, it goes back even prior to, to uh, Alexander the Great, is the, is the strategy known as divide and conquer. It's still used in modern warfare today. Divide and conquer. Propaganda is used, right? You know, political things to divide nations and, and people so that they have different agendas, different focuses for the purpose of what? Ultimately overthrowing that nation, a regime, or, or perhaps seeing a nation um, deteriorate. So you see, this is something that the enemy uses. Divide and conquer. If he can bring division among God's people, he's really accomplished something powerful. You know, why is that? Because first of all, it affects our worship. You know, we cannot worship God and it be acceptable if we have a disagreement or, or, or a division with another person. The Bible says that you need to go and leave your gift at the altar and then go and be reconciled. It says in Hebrews 12 verse 14, if possible, live at peace with all men. If possible. So we have to do our part. There's a place where we have to do our part. It also affects, obviously, our, our interaction with one another. If we are not in unity together, then guess what happens? I mean, it's a difficult thing to live. You imagine living in the same home with someone and not talking. You're married or it's your kids and you don't talk. I mean, one day or half a day is pretty bad. You know, the Bible talks about not going to, to letting the sun set, right, on, on your wrath. So, you know, we've tried, Lynn and I, not that we disagree a lot throughout the years, we've gotten better, but we still have disagreements from time to time, if you believe that or not. And actually, when we were in Melbourne, um, Dr. Ray Andrews is a psychologist and a spirit-filled guy, and he did a profile on all of the pastors. And you know, when Lynn and I got together, guess what he said about our profiles? He said, whoa, here are two very strong people. Well, that's what he said. And he said, you have the exact same personality as the Apostle Paul. That's what he told me. I said, I don't know if that means uh, that's a good thing or not a good thing. He said, uh, I said, I'm not a dinosaur. I'm not a carnivore. I don't eat people and spit them out. I said, I love people. I really do. But he said, but you're results-oriented, you're, you're kind of driven, and you want to see things happen, and you're strong. But I try to be nice to people. I do. And, <laughs> but you know what? I, I just honestly, like, sometimes people get in your way. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and you just got to walk over them. And hopefully, someone with a pastoral gift will pick them up and, you know. So the truth is, is that you guys are both strong. Now, he said some things, and it was so accurate what he said. He didn't know us, and he said things that was so accurate. 
You know, one of the things he said was this. He said, if you buy a car, said, Lynn doesn't care what size the engine is, but she wants to know what the color is. I looked at her and I said, how did you know that? He just filled out a piece of paper. And, and he said, but she wants you to talk to her about the, the color. So don't just buy it. Talk to her. So I'm telling you, it was such a revelation. Now I understand why she's so difficult to live with. <laughs> she wants to know the color. All right. Don't, don't buy it. Talk to me at least about the color before you buy it. Okay. So there's a place, obviously, where we learn to live with each other because we are different, correct? Personalities and, and how we, we deal with things. But ultimately, there's something that separates us, and it's an area that's non-negotiable, and that is the truth of God's word. You know, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. How many know you can speak lies in love, in a sense? But you can also speak truth and it not be in love. So we have to have both. Speak the truth in love. That's what we're supposed to do. And the enemy wants to bring division. And he uses those things about us that, that are different. But ultimately, as we grow in our relationship and our understanding with one another, and the more we become like Jesus the more patient we are and the more understanding we become of one another. But he does still want to use offense. He does still want to use bitterness or, or different things to divide us, disagreements. Disagreements actually should drive us to deeper levels of intimacy. We should be able to go to a place where, okay, let's talk about this. Let's walk through this. Let's sort this out. And it's not like, I know sometimes people get emotional and you need some space, but ultimately the point of it is that we can even get closer with one another. Help me to understand. Help me to see things the way you see it and so on. And the enemy, of course, he doesn't want this to happen. He does not want us to live in a place of unity. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says this. It says this, to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit by the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. It requires effort. In fact, the word translated keep is, can be translated guard. And it speaks of like a military person, a sentry guarding so that God wants us to guard unity. Unity is very important. God wants us to live in a place of unity. Why is that? Because it not only affects our ability to worship God acceptably, it not only affects our ability to have fellowship with one another, but it ultimately destroys our effectiveness in mission. We're called to be a body. The Bible says stand as one man. Be as one man, be as one person. Work together. We are the body of Christ and each one of us is an individual member. We're a piece of the anatomy, so to speak. If we're disconnected from one another, it's like a hand lying on the ground. A hand cannot do anything if it's disconnected from the body. 
So it impedes our effectiveness at mission. We're called to move forward in the mission of God. But if we are not connected, if we're not dwelling in unity, if we're not functioning together with one mind, with one purpose, with one desire, then it will hinder, at the very least, our effectiveness in mission. And that's what the enemy wants to stop. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way. Conversely, when believers dwell together in unity, there is great blessing released. Great blessing. Psalm 133, let's look at it. We're very familiar with this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, brothers and sisters. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garment. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Why? For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. There's a drive less, save more. Ride Coda with the Transit app. Download today for a 450 credit. There's a new way to pay at Coda. Place of commanded blessing. Do you know that we cannot be blessed apart from God blessing us? Correct. Grace is the fact that we are recipients, but there is something that we can do to position ourselves to receive the blessing. So what do we do? dwell together in unity and when we're there in unity god commands a blessing something very powerful happens let's look at two examples in the bible second chronicles 5 12 through 14 this is the story about solomon dedicating the temple to the lord now what ends up happening is they bring the ark of the covenant back in to the temple they place it there and then they begin to celebrate and it says the levites who were the singers and all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthon with their sons and their brethren stood at the east end of the altar clothed in white linen having cymbals, stringed instruments and harps and with them 120 priests. Notice that, 120 priests. And it says sounding with trumpets. All right, well, look, look what happens next. Indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, his mercy endures forever that the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud, filled with the glory, filled with the, of God. The priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So it's as they were one in one accord as one voice, one sound, that the blessing of God came. In fact, one of the words in the New Testament that speaks of unity actually is a Greek word that we get our English term symphony from it. Symphony. So it speaks of being like a symphony. True unity among us as believers is being like a symphony. It's not uniformity. It's unity. We all have our unique position and function, just like in a symphony, you have different instruments, different uh, people who, who function in different ways, but together it makes one sound. Together it brings the sound of heaven, so to speak. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, it says this. Listen to this. I, I, love, I love this. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's the scripture the Lord gave me for that lady. They were, and it suddenly... 
There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They appeared to be divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So here they are in one accord in one place. Now, you can be in one place and not be in one accord, correct? And uh, it's true that you can actually be in one accord and not be in the one place in the sense that you can be in agreement with one another and have a, have a right spirit. But it's when we come together and we have the same spirit, the right spirit, we're submitted to God, then we are in that place of perfect unity that the blessing of God is released. It's where he commands the blessing. It's an amazing thing. I remember ministering in a country and we, we were preaching there and the power of God broke out and there were miracles happening. It was just amazing what happened. People started coming from all over the place. And particularly in the evenings on Sunday night every week, people were coming from all over the place. Healings, uh, but just this hunger. And ended up a local Christian television station heard about it and they contacted me. And they asked me, he said, we want to find out what's going on at this church. And so uh, they spoke to me and we, I ended up doing an interview and I told them what was going on. And uh, it was just amazing. I mean, people that had been uh, rebellious, hard-hearted, unconcerned for God for many years, family members, all of a sudden were showing up at the church and getting saved. Just, you know, people had prayed for them. I've been praying for him for 20 years. All of a sudden, boom, changes just in a, in a short period of time. So much was happening. It was a true move of God's spirit. I remember one afternoon, I was in, uh, at home at, or in my office or wherever we were staying and, and I'm, I'm just reading the word and I read this scripture that talks about guarding the precious thing that has been given to you by the Holy Spirit. I believe it's 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard that precious thing. One translation says the treasure that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. Guard it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord said to me, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be strong because the enemy is going to try to attack and try to shut this move of the Spirit down. Keep your eyes open. Watch. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians, don't be ignorant of his devices or his schemes. Don't be ignorant of the way Satan operates. Do you think that in a revival that the enemy is just going to sit back? Uh-uh. It says in Psalm 74, the enemy roars in the dwelling place. The enemy roars in the house of God. The enemy roars in the dwelling place. Who goes around like a roaring lion? All right, Okay. So the enemy is attacking. The enemy is trying to shut down this move of the spirit. So what ends up happening is one of the elders in the church, just shortly after that, is accused of doing something wrong. Totally false, no basis to it at all, but nonetheless, he was accused. And individuals in the church started getting together, talking about it, and the whole situation was dealt with by the leadership in the church, but the bottom line is it had caused so much division, so much disunity that, that the spirit of God was just out of there. 
you just go back into this shortly after. In fact, the first thing that I noticed was the presence of God had dissipated. Something is different. What's happened? It's like somebody's thrown a, a wet blanket on, on, on the fire of God in this place. What's going on? And then just a, a, a little while after this, I start to see all the accusations and the lies about this man. It ended up the Spirit of God said, that's it. I'm grieved. I'm out of here. I cannot move. I will not pour out my spirit when people are gossiping about one another, lying, and there's disunity. We were at a place, guys, of great power and glory. And we went down to it was just like, oh, my gosh, there's nothing. So dry. Let me tell you, one of the reasons why churches today continue to exist, even though there's division, there's gossip, is because they've never been to that place where they recognize the glory and the authority and they think it's normal to live in a place of mediocrity, in a place of no power, of impotency. But the truth is, once we've tasted that the Lord is good, once we know his goodness and his glory, like we said a couple of weeks ago, like Moses, you know, Lord, don't send me up unless your presence goes with me. You know, it's not enough to have the promise. I've got to have your presence. And so a lot of churches today, you know, they have many people in the church, which is good. You know, they've, they've got the resources they need to, to do different things. But ultimately, there's no sense of God's presence and power. And so what happens is we judge our effectiveness, our success, so to speak, based on external things and not the presence of God. You know, we have provision. We're seeing, in a sense, God move in the sense that he's providing resources, but the presence of God is not there. See, it's the presence of God that's going to unlock the hearts of the rebellious. It's the presence of God that's going to bring healing. Because many people, you sit in these churches week after week, year after year, struggling with addiction, struggling with conditions, struggling with deep iniquitous things, and they never receive freedom. Why? Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. We saw that. Now, look, you can be in a place where the presence of God is strong. The, the Lord is moving and still not experience freedom because it is our choice, isn't it? But it's a place of great effectiveness. It's a place where the blessing of God is, is when we dwell together in unity and the enemies of fire quencher and he wants to shut down his, the fire of God. The second reason why dealing with division, disunity, uh, schism is so important or, or guarding, let me be positive about it, guarding the unity of the spirit, right? Because how many like division, disunity, fighting, right? Lots of fun, isn't it? Right? Now, seriously, so we don't want to go there, do we? And I'm not saying we have that happening here. I'm not saying that, not to my knowledge. But what I am saying is there's a place where we guard so that we stay in unity. So we stay in oneness. 
so that the enemy's not able to step in and bring disunity because we recognize him and we're not ignorant of his devices and we see what he's trying to do because he is a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He does disguise himself as an angel of light at times and we say, no, 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 devil, you're not having your way. You're not going to do this. You're not going to create or drive a wedge between myself, my, my husband, my wife, my children, or my church members, my, fr- my brothers and sisters in the Lord, even at your place where you work. You recognize that. And so you guard the unity of the Spirit. You guard it. You protect it. You're, you're, in, uh, you're vigilant and you're, in, in, you're being purposeful in terms of protecting that so it doesn't happen. Listen, when we live in unity... It is the greatest testimony the world can ever see of who we are. It is the greatest testimony. You know, I was thinking, and I, I couldn't find the actual quote or, or, or the, uh, the writing, but I remember reading um, one, of our, one of the early church fathers, I believe it was, wrote about the Christians and how they would get together and they would be from all different ethnic backgrounds, all different, uh, you know, social economic backgrounds, and they would just love one another, and they would serve one another, worship together, walk together. In fact, there were slaves who their day job, being a slave, so to speak, would go to these meetings. They would have, they got saved through their masters I, again. It was what it was, slavery. I'm not saying the Bible advocated it, or, but I'm just saying it was what it was. So here are slaves going to these meetings, and in the church meetings, the masters are washing the feet of their slaves. There's such unity. In fact, in the church in Antioch, in, in Syrian Antioch, the Bible says it was the first place that we were called Christians. And one of the, the reasons why this, the city was divided into different quarters. There were Romans who lived in one section, Greeks and the others. There were North Africans. There were Jews. And they all lived in different sections. And there were these walls, actually, that separated the, the different quarters in which they lived. And one of the, the, the arguments for why we were first called Christians is because they would literally jump the walls and go into one another's neighborhood and meet together in homes and fellowship with one another, cross culture lines and, and so on. And they were believe, the people were saying, what do we call these people? They're different. They're not Jews. They're not Greeks. They're not Africans. They're not, you know, uh, Romans. They're completely different. And they said, well, they're like a different species, like another group of people altogether. So let's call them Christians. Wow. So good. The fullness of God's blessing is released when we're united in Christ, absolutely. But it's also the place in Christ where we have our greatest influence. John 17, 21, Jesus praying for us that they also may be one in us. Why? One in him, we collectively are one in him. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. The greatest testimony is a redeemed people selflessly serving one another Walking in unity, filled with the fullness of Christ's love. Satan is a fire quencher. He wants to put out the fire of God. Understand this. We're called to guard, keep, protect the unity of the spirit. Notice that. 
What is the spirit or who is the spirit there? Ephesians 4, 3, the Holy Spirit. So we're, it's a unity that the Bible talks about is spiritual. Why? Because 1 John 1, verse 3, talks about our fellowship with God. And this is what it says. It says in 1 John 1, verse 3, that which we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Okay, so John's saying, we want you to have fellowship with us. We want you to be part of this body. We want you to be part of this redeemed company of people. We want you to have fellowship. But understand this, our fellowship, if we go back to that verse, is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. It's with him. That's what our fellowship is. Our fellowship has to be focused on him. So when we go over to John chapter 17, verse 11 here. Let's look at this. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Listen, they may be one as we are. Now, he's not referring to being one like horizontally, socially. He's referring to a oneness just as Jesus was one with the Father. How many know that Jesus' fellowship was more than just a social fellowship. It was a spiritual reality that Jesus was one, it says. So one. All right. Now watch this. Let's go back to verse 21. It says, you, and and it begins to talk about how they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us. One in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. There cannot be fellowship if we're not walking in the light mutually. It's a spiritual thing. And we look at people, and what is the light? The truth. If you read the beginning of that chapter, 1 John, it talks about how God is light, yes, how his word is light, how his presence is light. So we have to be living in a place of oneness with God. We have to live in a place where we are growing in him. If we walk in the light, how many know that it doesn't say if you stand in the light? It says if you walk in the light, meaning that you, we are to walk out, we are to move in the light. We're moving forward. We're not, we're not static. We're not stationary, but we're moving. And as we're growing and progressing in the light, in the revelation of God, of who he is, his love, his truth, one with another, it's kind of like the triangle. And I said where one is, uh, of us is at the base and the other is the other side of the base, but we're moving forward toward God. The closer we get to God who's at the top, the closer we get to one another. In fact, the reason why we have division is very clear. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 2, 3, 8. Philippians 2, 2, 3, 8. It says this, fulfill my joy, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Wow, that's amazing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Let's continue. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to talk about how Jesus personified and, and exemplified that. He was the quintessential example of a person who did not live for himself or look out for his own interests. Why do we have fights? Why do we have arguments? Because we want what we want when we want it. Because we try to change people. We think it's my responsibility to change people. Guess what? It's our responsibility to submit to God and allow him to change us. But it's not our responsibility to change anyone else. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, what? Honor, submit to your husband. It does say to submit to one another. It does say to love one another also. But what are we saying here? We're saying that you can't change me and I can't change you. And it's neither one of our jobs. I'm to work on myself and I'm to love you. And as I love you, yes, there is a place, obviously, in love where we speak the truth. There is a place, obviously, at times where we encourage and sometimes even correct one another. But ultimately, we are not responsible for changing the other person. Man, we have a hard enough time changing ourselves, don't we? Come on, some will say to your neighbor, I'm a masterpiece, but I'm also a work in progress. (laughs) All right, you're God's masterpiece, but you're a work in progress, aren't you? All right, listen to this, the Passion Translation. Listen to this. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself further into obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Wow. What a glorious submission. So what do we do? How do we walk in unity? You know, we say in an argument, when people have a disagreement, let's use that term. Isn't that better, disagreement? Doesn't it just sound more, more euphemistic, isn't it? So and when you, when you disagree with someone, did you ever think, well, that's my opinion and I'm sticking with it, right? But what if it's not God's take on the matter? What if it's not what God wants? What if you're actually wrong? What if maybe what you're saying is true, but how you're saying it and and how you're conducting yourself is wrong? Hmm. Then you're wrong, no matter how right you are. That's the truth. So what happens is we... In an argument, you have one person is right, the other person is wrong, or both persons are wrong. How often do we think it's one of us was right and one of us was wrong when actually we were both wrong? What does that mean? It means we have to bring ourselves to the point where we have the mind of Christ. You know, I love... Philippians chapter four, verse two. 
Paul says, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to settle their disagreements and be restored with one mind or the same mind in the Lord. Here are two women. If you read the context of this chapter, these women had served alongside Paul and helped him. They were very important. They were very strategic. They were part of a team. They were even friends. But something happened. There was some type of disagreement And it ended up, they stopped talking to one another and Paul sees what's going on and he does encourage in the next few verses about one of the the servants of God to help uh, work through the process of reconciliation. But the bottom line is, he is saying here, here's how to fix it. Get the same mind in the Lord. I reckon if we would rather just say, well, you know, let's just agree to disagree. Why don't we just say, hey, why don't we agree to get the mind of the Lord on this? I don't think God's schizophrenic. I believe the Lord knows what he means. I believe God knows what he means in his word. When we look at a situation, even if, You know, you like chicken and I like steak. I get that. I'm not talking about preferences. I'm not talking about the color of the room. What I'm referring to is we think this is the right way to deal with the situation. We think this is what the word teaches. Let's say, okay, let's walk through this journey. Let's seek God for a better understanding of his word and of his ways. Lord, help me to understand this situation. And often, and I see this particularly among uh, husband and wife who are, who are dealing with children. How many of you know that sometimes, how many of you know that we both, all kids need a, a father and a mother? It's been proven, right? right? So we, they need both. Now, I'm not saying it's they can't grow up healthy If they don't have a father in the home, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, ideally, they need both. But what happens is sometimes maybe a husband wants to deal with the situation quite strongly, quite sternly, and the wife wants to deal with it more compassionately. But guess what? It can happen the other way also, where the wife is like, we're going to deal with it this way. And the husband's like, no, we need to be more sensitive, we need to be more gentle in the situation. And then what happens is there's a disagreement. And if this continues, if this perpetuates, then every time something happens, it's a source of tension and even division. And it can actually, I've seen it, especially with kids that are really dysfunctional, rebellious, addicts, it can actually split up marriages. And before there was no issue, but now there's an issue with how do we deal with this? So what's the answer? The answer is, what does God say? What does God want us to do? I believe we can ask him, how do I deal with this? Give me wisdom, Lord. And we can also be patient with one another and say, I don't understand necessarily why you feel this way. And perhaps you don't understand why I feel this way, but can we agree to work together, to walk together, to go through this together? Can we walk through this? But let's keep seeking God for better understanding, for more revelation of of wisdom. Let's love. Love. You know, there's a place in the Bible where Paul says this. 
don't take one another to court as believers. Rather, let yourself be wronged. Let someone rip you off. (laughs) Take your stuff. Jesus says if they ask you for your coat, give it to them. If they ask you for money, give it to them. Don't, Don't lend it to them. Just give it to them and don't expect them to pay you back. Am I preaching the word, guys? Okay, that's in the word, isn't it? So what happens, rather let yourself be wrong. But they did this to me. They did that to me. It's okay. God's your vindicator. God will take care of you. When a believer goes to court and fights with another believer, it's a terrible witness before the world. That's his point in 1 Corinthians 6. So live in unity. Live in oneness. In that place of loving, of accepting, of, of embracing one another and being intentional about being kind and loving. And guess what happens? By the spirit of God's help, I'm going to keep the unity. I'm going to walk in this place of unity. I'm going to guard it through the bond of peace. And I know God's going to be blessed. God's going to be honored. God's going to be pleased. And I know that I will be blessed because I have made a decision to do the right thing and honor God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand together.